Now, I wonder what you would consider to be the most unforgettable meal that you have ever had. Uh, what meal do you, when I say unforgettable, I mean that in general terms, what meal do you remember most? Uh, when I said something, what meal do you think, well, I remember that for X. And then I have had many meals in my life, of course. <laughs> I would, wouldn't I? <laughs> and there are many meals that stick to my mind when I think of that question now. For example, I think of the meal I had at the wedding when we got married, when Eunice and I got married. Uh, it was a meal that was, of course, hard to forget. It's your wedding meal, and it's nice to sit at the table and, uh, and be the center of attention, I guess, uh, for a little bit. So that was, uh, uh, that was really unforgettable, wonderfully cooked meal, and that went really well. So the occasion itself of marrying my wife and having a meal with her in front of everyone that is, that is unforgettable, and I'm sure those of you who are married would remember that meal as well. Even as I speak, you remember how it was. But my meal was also unforgettable, of course, because uh, while we were having that meal, uh, the power cut, we had a power cut that day when we were having it in Zambia. So I do also remember it for experiencing a power cut uh, while we were there. You can't forget something like that. It's a wedding anyway, so you can't forget it. But just having the power cut at that time uh, allow, it means that I always do think about it. There are other meals I've had sometimes. I've had a meal and I've gone and felt sick. In fact, in Zambia, we had a meal once which just knocked me out for a week. <laughs> uh, I thought I was about to die, actually, uh, when, when I had that meal. Um, it really uh, just shocked me completely, uh, etc. So those, those things uh, happen, isn't it? There are meals like that, which we remember for whatever reason. They're unforgettable, perhaps for good, or they may be unforgettable for the bad, right? Now, whatever the nature of the meal, as I said, what makes the meal unforgettable is the events or significance or the symbolism that surrounds that meal. Uh, a meal isn't just a meal. What makes it unforgettable is that there's usually something that's happening in the background. The, the wedding meal was unforgettable because of the occasion of me marrying my bride at the time, my wife now. We started looking at the Lord's Supper this morning, uh, but we are continuing to look at it uh, this evening in Mark chapter 14, verse 22 to verse 26. And we were asking uh, this morning, and we are asking this evening, what makes the Lord's Supper special or important? And we said this morning that what makes it special is that it is a meal with Jesus. It is special because of what it represents, what's surrounding it. And what surrounds it is that Jesus himself is actually present. And that was, in fact, the first lesson we learned. I said in Mark 14, verse 22 to 26, uh, there are four lessons I want us to just explore today. And the first lesson we learned this morning is that what makes the Lord's Supper special is that it is the meal with Jesus. The Lord's Supper celebrates the spiritual presence of Jesus among us. It is a meal with Jesus. We looked at verse 22, didn't we? Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And you may have thought about the body in different ways. Some people think the body there represents the body being broken for us on the cross. But I reminded you that Mark, you must pay attention to how Mark uses the, 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 the words here. 
And in the original language, Mark actually is communicating that what Jesus is referring to is not his physical body, literally my person or my whole being. Take, this is my person. This is my whole being. Jesus is saying, I am myself this bread. He's not saying he's in the bread. As I said this morning, he's saying that I'm giving myself to you in this meal. Jesus is saying, whenever we have this meal, he is spiritually present as our host. The Lord's Supper is his meal. He is the eternal presider over it. And that's one of the things, I want, that's the most important thing, actually, I think, as I said this morning, we need to take away from the Lord's Supper, and it is this. The Lord's Supper is first and foremost a celebration of the never-ending spiritual presence of Jesus, God the Son, until we see him face to face. This means, as I said this morning, we need to value being present at the Lord's table. And what also means that we need to come to the Lord's table with reverence because of the God who is holy, who is righteous, is present at the table. But we also need to come with joy because this is our God who has purchased us with his own blood in Christ. So we need to come with joy that we've been welcomed at the table. Well, this evening I just want to look now at the other three lessons that our Lord Jesus is teaching us here. The second lesson is that the Lord's Supper celebrates our new permanent life with God in Jesus. It celebrates our new permanent life with God in Jesus. And we see this in what the Lord Jesus says in verse 23. Verse 23 says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The Bible says that the life of every creature is in his blood. So when our Lord Jesus says here in verse 24, this is my blood, he's literally saying this is my life. That's what he's saying. This is my life. Now, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, by, uh, he delivered them by that Passover sacrifice which we looked at this morning. But I made the point that, well, perhaps I didn't make that point clearly. The point I, was, I should have made perhaps more clearly is that that Passover sacrifice initially was an anticipation of a future covenant he was going to establish with them. Because after Israel, in fact, I made that point at the prayer meeting, right? After Israel left Egypt, God established with them a covenant of blood at Mount Sinai, which we read about, we read about this morning in Exodus 24, verse 3 to verse 8. I'll just repeat that. Exodus 24, verse 3 to verse 8. We read this. Moses came and taught the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. 
He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in a basin, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the earrings of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what we're seeing there is that this blood is thrown on the people and is thrown against the altar. The altar representing, of course, in that sense, God himself. And the, and the blood, of course, being, 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 thrown, being thrown on the people, right? And, and what, is, what God is doing there is he's establishing a covenant, a covenant sealed by blood. And this covenant that God establishes at Sinai, Israel renewed every year through covenant sacrifices. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the temple and he sacrificed bulls and goats to pay for the sins of the people. It, that process was a renewal, if you like, of the Sinai Covenant. But that Day of Atonement, all those sacrifices, that solution was, a, was only a temporary solution. Because you see, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, the, the animals cannot pay the sacrifice for sin, really. They cannot really atone for human beings because the quality of life is different. So what was needed is a new blood covenant that would offer a permanent and more perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice as Jeremiah and Ezekiel both, um, a covenant that, 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 that um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel look forward to not only a covenant that would, 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 would lead, would, would, would fully perfect the people, but actually would change their hearts. They needed a sacrifice that could do that, that would bring about change also from inside out. And that's quite important for us to understand, because you see, when we look at the, the Sinai covenant and the Day of Atonement and all that is taking place in the Old Testament, all those sacrifices in the Old Testament we are only being accepted by God on the basis of a future sacrifice that would be more superior. I have sometimes made this point that all those sacrifices, which were imperfect, uh, were like, they were like IOUs. Okay? So, <laughs> so every time they, uh, the, the people of Israel sacrificed something on the Day of Atonement, God was writing an IOU. He was saying, in the future, at some time, I'm going to pay for this sacrifice through a more perfect and eternal sacrifice. So in and of themselves, they were not able to accomplish the job. They simply underpinned the need for a more superior sacrifice. And what Jesus is revealing to us here in Mark is that he is the long-awaited superior sacrifice. He is the long-awaited sacrificial lamb that comes to establish this new covenant by his death. 
And Jesus established this covenant by willingly, voluntarily going to the cross on Good Friday, as he will do. We are on Thursday, remember, this is Thursday night. Uh, On Friday, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to lay down his life as a sacrifice before God for our sins. Now, the question is, what makes this new blood covenant by Jesus superior? Well, it is superior to the odds because it is based on the precious blood of one who is fully God and fully man. As a human being, Jesus qualifies to stand in our place as a sacrifice to pay for our sin. Man is a sinner, so a perfect man must die for us. And Jesus is the second Adam. He's perfect. And he's able to be that sacrifice. And as God, Jesus qualifies, doesn't he? As one who's fully God, the blood of Jesus has eternal value. God in Christ has died for us. God cannot die, but he took on the body in order that he could go on the cross and lay down for our sins. As one Puritan puts it, the blood of Christ, we might say, was perfumed by the eternal spirit. And therefore his blood is able to wash away not just the sins of one sinner, but the sin of any sinner who comes before God. Not just the sin of a sinner who seems little, but even a die-hard, demonized sinner like the tomb man. He can pay the price for that as we see, uh, as he's been able to set sinners free throughout history. And we see an example there in Mark 5. Because you see, unlike the old covenant, the new covenant of Jesus is for all who trust in Jesus regardless of our national or ethnic identities. That's what Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom, not for a few, not for a certain type of people, but for many, as many as the Father would call. Christ died for them. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are affirming that we now belong, we are now a blood-bought people. We are affirming that we are now part of this new covenant sealed by the precious blood of Jesus. The cup we, we drink symbolizes that blood sacrifice of Jesus by which God binds sinners to himself and delivers us from sin, from the slavery of sin. The, the, the blood of Christ not only delivers us from the guilt of sin, but it also breaks the power of sin. In, in, we, said, we said this morning that Jesus, of course, is not present in the bread. And in the same way, Jesus is not present in this cup. This cup is representing that atoning work of Christ. It is pointing us to that. And that's why in our Lord's Supper, our attention must not be focused on the bread We must ensure, of course, the bread is properly prepared. But let's not focus on the bread. Let's not focus on the wine. Our focus must be on Jesus who is present with us as we celebrate. Jesus who has established our new life with God. And by us drinking the cup, we are symbolizing that we share in his life. 
in the life of Christ. Remember the cup is, <laughs> Jesus is saying, this is my life. And by us drinking it, we are simply that we share in his life. We share in the blessing of the new covenant he has established on the cross by his sacrifice there on the cross. And as we participate, we are reminded of all that Jesus has done on the cross for us. We are reminded that we are sinners who stood guilty before God. But our Lord Jesus came and paid the price for our sins. We are reminded that we have been declared righteous by his blood and adopted as his precious children. We are reminded that we have now been made born again to a living hope. That we have a new life in Christ. We are joined to God. Our life now is now hidden in Christ. We are reminding us that this is our identity now. His life is our life. Taking the bread and the wine is therefore, beloved, an exercise of faith. It is a means of grace that proclaims afresh that we belong to God through Jesus Christ. Yes, I know we do that through many ways. I'm hoping, I hope you profess faith at work. You profess faith with the friends you meet. I hope you are, you are you're visible as a believer wherever God has, has placed you as far as it is humanly or spiritually possible to do it. But this is a supreme means for which God has ordained for you to declare that among his people and in the world. It is the means of grace that strengthens you in that proclamation. It is an exercise of faith. The Lord's Supper, you see, is the gospel. I hope I said this this morning. It is the gospel made tangible. It makes the good news of Jesus something we actually test and see. Isn't it amazing that God in the scriptures speaks to us across the five senses? We hear, we speak, we hear through the words of God. Faith comes by hearing. We speak out loud the praises of God. That's another, I hope that's another sense. You're hearing something, you're doing another sense thing. But, you're but as you take the bread, right, you're testing it. You're smelling the bread. You're smelling the gospel. You're testing the gospel. He's speaking to those senses as well. Sight, sound, and test, and etc. You can fill in the other two, right? So, so, so that's what's happening. So, so the gospel speaks to all our senses. And as we partake of the Lord's table, it is continually reminding us also that we must press continuously forward, following Jesus by laying down our lives. We, we are reminded that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we are encouraged to lay down our lives for him. We are encouraged actually to put to death whatever is earthly in us as well. So, that is the second point, isn't it? That we must remember when we think of the Lord's table. And it is that the Lord's Supper celebrates our new permanent life with God. Now, there are two implications that flow from that. The first implication is that because the Lord's Supper celebrates our new life with God, only those who have new life with God can take it. The Lord's Supper is not some evangelistic exercise. It is a meal for those who have genuinely surrendered their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It is not a table for those who claim to have Jesus as Savior but not Lord. It is for those who have said to Jesus, nothing in mind they bring only to the cross of Christ I cling. 
It is to those who obey Mark 8 verse 34. If anyone should come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. You see, when the Lord's table is dominated by people who are not credible followers of Jesus, it is no longer a true meal with Jesus. It is sacrilege. It is an abomination. And this brings us to the second implication, isn't it? We as a church have a duty. You as members have a duty before God to make sure that people in our membership who partake of the Lord's table are truly converted believers. Believe it or not, God will hold you to account for that, not just me as a pastor. And you must ensure that to as much as God would enable you. Now, of course, there are ways that, well, that means is that you need to know the members very well. You need to take a deep interest in their lives and they need to know you, right? But you must, we must ensure that corporately as a church, why? Not only because an unconverted membership dishonors God and therefore will be held to account for it, but it also does damage to the to those people if we allow them to the table and they are not truly converted. To admit people who are not converted to the Lord's Supper gives them a false sense of assurance. It, give, it, it gives them a false sense of assurance that damns them to hell forever. Literally. The final implication, I said there were two. There is a final implication from that, isn't there? The final implication that this means we must ensure also that we have a disciplined table. Those living in unrepentant sin, they must abstain from the Lord's table. Now, people like to grudge to, 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 to have a list of sins they think are unrepentant. I think it's just unrepentant, period. We must have sin. We all have sins. And if we keep repenting, that's great. But if we are willfully unrepentant, then we shouldn't approach the Lord's table. We must approach the Lord's table until we have genuinely repented of our sin. Unrepentance raises, willful unrepentance, raises questions about profession of faith. So, of course, if you have sinned, don't come to the Lord's table. The Lord's table is for sinners. But for those that are living in open defiance of God, Refusing to repent of ongoing sin. Well, as a church, we have a responsibility to ensure that we encourage them to abstain from that, lest they have a false sense of their assurance before God. The third lesson we learn here is that the Lord's Supper uh, celebrates our new fellowship with one another. So. So, so the, the, the second lesson is that the Lord's Supper celebrates uh, our permanent life with God in Jesus. Well, the second lesson here is that the Lord's Supper celebrates our new fellowship with one another through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 22 to verse 23 just again there. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And said, Take, this is my body. And he took up a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. The all there is important, isn't it? They all drank from it. By the way, we think at this point, Judas has already, of course, left. 
But the awe is important here. The 11 that are left with the Lord Jesus. They all drank from it. And it's emphasizing the corporate or family nature of the celebration. All who have surrendered their lives are drink to Jesus, are drinking with Jesus. They are sat together with Jesus as one in Christ. The Bible teaches that when we repent, God makes us right with him, right? We will understand that, I hope. We call this justification. God declares us right before him. We are declared righteous before our God. But there is something else that happens when we repent, when we are declared justified. God transfers us from the domain of darkness into his kingdom of his beloved son. We are now now transferred from living under the family of the devil to living in a new family of Jesus. We are transferred from what Jesus talked about, isn't it? From living under that bondage, the household of Satan. He talked about it in Mark 3. He has come to bind the strong man and free us from that, we are now transferred to living in this new life, this new family of Jesus. When we are born again, God becomes our Father. That's what First John chapter three, verse one talks about. He says, "You know, God loved us." He talks about the love of the Father. Our, our wondrous love of Father is that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Paul, right in the Church of Galatia, says we have been adopted into God's family, heirs with Christ. And when we are now part of this new family of God, we now inherit new brothers and sisters. I have often called this familification. So, so it's justification and familification. We are now family now. It's the faith in Jesus is not just a ticket into heaven, right? It is a ticket into a new spiritual family, which now changes relationship with people around us forever. The people sat next to you, if they are truly in Jesus, or behind you, or in front of you, right? These are people who you are going to spend eternity with. Don't laugh, right? (laughs) This is now your true family. Maybe at this point, every time you come in church, you should take a look around. These are the people I'm going to spend eternity with. So get used to them now, right? No, love them now. That's the point. And the Lord's Supper is a family meal, isn't it? That expresses our bond of unity of the church as one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And as we sit down at the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming that we have not only been reconciled with God in Christ, we are reconciled to one another. Jews and Gentiles are now one, as Paul talks about, through the blood of the Lamb in Ephesians chapter And most importantly, you see, this eating of bread and wine together with our Lord Jesus, the head of the family, then you can see the point. It strengthens our family together as believers. Remember what I reminded us this morning? We said that families that eat together stay together. That's what we talked about this morning, isn't it? And just as human families are strengthened by eating together, our spiritual family here in Bexley, in this fellowship, is strengthened together through this meal with Jesus. Now, there are several implications that flow from that, isn't it? From the fact that the Lord's Supper celebrates uh, our fellowship, celebrates our fellowship with one another through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are several implications that flow from this. First of all, If this meal is a family meal, then only those 
those followers of Jesus committed to the church of God must take part. Now, yes, in theory, all believers qualify, but only those who have declared themselves really to be part of the body, the church, who identify with the church in a clear way must take part. Only those who have made, if you like, a public confession of belonging to the church of God, who are not ashamed of the church of God, and they have shown that they are not ashamed of the church of God by going through the waters of baptism, should take part. The Lord's Supper is an act of the local church. It's an act of the church invisible. And the way invisible. <laughs> and the way we public identify with the church of God is through baptism. To be blunt, you must be baptized to have the Lord's Supper. Those who are not baptized must not share in it because their faith is still private. And more than that, they are willfully refusing to come out for Jesus. We are living in the come out madness where people come out for all sorts of things. And here we have believers refusing to come out for something important, eternal, eternal value, being a part of the church. These people who are baptized, who are not baptized, but professedly believers, are living in unrepentant sin because they refuse to obey the command of Jesus. And that raises huge question marks over their professional faith. That's why the Lord's table, which is a family meal, must only have those who are baptized. That's the first implication. The second implication is that those who are baptized but perpetually refuse to commit themselves to this fellowship must not take part. Why? Because sharing the Lord's Supper must be linked with commitment to the church through membership under normal circumstances. There are circumstances under which if you, 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 you may be truly baptized, but you can't commit to the local church. But if you can commit, you must commit in order to take part in the Lord's Supper. Why? Because the Lord's Supper is not a private devotion. You can't have the Lord's Supper at home. The church can extend the Lord's Supper into a home. Of course it can. But you of yourself, you can't decide tomorrow, you know, at 2 a Oakhouse Road, I'm going to have the Lord's Supper. No. It is a family meal in which we affirm we are Christ's body by his grace. Fellowship with Jesus at the Lord's table tangibly reaffirms that I am not only joined to Christ, I am tangibly joined to Rob tangibly joined to Ola, tangibly joined to Sam. I am joined to those whom I eat with. And as we share together in the bread and the wine, we are reminded that we are truly one body. We are reminded that it is the blood of the new covenant of our Lord Jesus that binds us together. Not our own goodness, not our own holiness. It is his blood. And that binding together must have a tangible expression. It must have a tangible commitment in the way we look at one another. To participate regularly in the Lord's table with a real commitment to a local church shows that we disregard the people Jesus has died for. It shows actually that we are only there in name only. Look, 
I said this morning, right? A family where people come from, you know, live in a family, right? As I said this morning, right? If you are in a, if you live in a house and people don't eat together, we said this morning, we had a discussion about that. What? Well, many me talking, you listening, right? I said that can't really be called a family, right? Because it's just like everybody lives individual lives under one roof. It's a family only when people are doing life together. And, and in the home, it's around the meal table. That's where the family really is defined, right? In the same way, I just want to draw a similar analogy, right? If you are in the church, you are baptized, you are, con you are converted, you're baptized, right? But you have not committed yourself to the church in terms of membership. And you are taking the Lord's table. You are doing it in name only, right? It is like you turning up at a family meal now, right? And you do not get involved with anything else in the house. You never do the washing up. You never talk to anyone. All you do is you come in, eat the Lord's table, you are out, right? Well, you have a few chats over coffee and everything else. But you are not, you haven't committed yourself to those people. That's disrespectful. To the church, not to the pastor or the members, to, the, to, to Christ himself, in fact, I would say. Right? So if someone wants to perpetually be part, to take part in the Lord's Supper, but does not want to commit to us, we must kindly tell them, no, sorry, that's not right. That's not right. And as a church, of course, we've already, we've lost, since I've been here, I've, I, we've had those situations, at least two people that have walked away from the church. Uh, because of that. They were happy to take the Lord's Supper, but they didn't want to commit to us. They were happy to come into our home to eat, but not do the dishes. They just wanted to eat, not contribute. Right? We might say. The final implication this shows us is that when we do take the Lord's Supper, we must ensure that we are committed to growing in intimacy with one another. If the Lord's Supper is... Um, family meal, then when we take it, we must commit, we must be taking it with the spirit of committing to grow in intimacy with one another. You know, in John's account, before the Lord's Supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And then he commanded them to love one another as he loved them. That's the context in John. There's a lot going on in the upper room, right? And that's what happened before the Lord's Supper in John. Mark doesn't include that, but John does, right? Jesus washed the disciples' feet and commanded them to love one another as he loved them. Jesus wanted them to take the Lord's Supper with love on their hearts. He wanted them to look around and say to each other and say, these are my loved ones I'm taking the Lord's Supper with. These are my loved ones. And I just want to pray, and my prayer is that, and I just want to encourage you that our, we should pray that this should be the attitude that characterizes us when we come around the Lord's table. Let us take the Lord's table with eyes open, looking at one another. There are aspects of the Lord's table where you should be bowed, you know, in prayer. But you should also take it looking around. That's why we say the benediction, we say that, um, you know what I'm talking about. The benediction at the end where we say to one another, right? Right? I think it's in Romans. So that, it might not be, don't quote me on that. Check, it's somewhere in the Bible, right? Uh, no, seriously, it is in the Bible. So, so we said our benediction, looking, looking at one another, right? 
We're trying to encourage ourselves that as we meet, we should be looking at each other because these are the loved ones. We should come to the Lord's table looking around and asking ourselves, am I growing in loving these people as Christ loves them? Am I willing to lay down my life for Ola? Am I willing to lay down my life for Sandra? Am I willing to lay down my life for Maury? Am I growing in praying and caring for John? Am I growing in praying and caring for Tanwa? Am I longing to see the best God's work abound more and more in the, brother of, in the life of Brother Michael? That's how we should approach the Lord's table. The Lord's table is not a table of hypocrites where people love each other in name only. Let us remember Jesus' warning to the scribes. We've already seen Jesus call them out on hypocrisy. Those who walk around in long robes. To come to the Lord's table without genuine love for other believers is a sin. It's a sin. So we see here, don't we, that the Lord's Supper celebrates our fellowship with one another through Jesus Christ. The final thing I just want to say here is that the fourth lesson is that the Lord's Supper celebrates our future with God and one another. This is so vital. When Jesus accepted the cup, he said, Prendy, look at verse 25. Truly I said to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is another deviation from the normal Passover meal liturgy, as I said this morning. Jesus is meant to introduce the fourth cup, the fourth and final cup of the Passover. But Jesus doesn't. Instead, he reveals that the next time he will drink the fourth cup, we might say, is until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And what he means here by the kingdom of God, he drinks it anew. What he means is that the last day when the kingdom of God will be fully realized. Uh, the day he spoke about in Mark 13, verse 24 to 27, when he comes in glory. And true to his word, that is that enough eating for today, right? <laughs> the Lord Jesus brings the whole thing to a close. The disciples stand up and sing the Aleo Psalms and the Edal. We read that in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what we have in front of us is that Jesus has stopped the Passover, the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper without finishing it. Why has Jesus done that? He is teaching us an important truth about the Lord's Supper. If you remember anything, remember this. I think this is big. And it is this. The Lord's Supper is an eschatological feast. It is a feast that brings the future into the present. Now, in one sense, when I do the Lord's Supper, I say the Lord's Supper actually looks forward to our blessed hope, the return of our Lord when we shall take part in the marriage feast of the Lamb. That is true, right? Of course it does. But it is more accurate to say the Lord's Supper is bringing the future into the present. The Lord's Supper is actually a taking part in an initial phase, we might say, in an initial test of the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. 
The Lord's Supper does not just point to the final heavenly banquet. It is the heavenly banquet bought brought into the present. We are observing the beginning of the heavenly banquet. Why? Because Jesus himself is present at the table, as we said this morning. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are displaying in history a glimpse of the end of history and anticipating the world that is coming. Every time we are at the Lord's table, Jesus is present among us. And as, as much as humanly possible, we are visualizing the world that Jesus is bringing into being. The kingdom has already broken in. And at the Lord's table, we are seeing a glimpse of that. <laughs> the way we should see it is like this, right? It's like there are these two parallel realities. And with every day that passes, that reality of the invisible is becoming more and more visible until on that great day it is fully visible. The kingdom of God has broken in and we are already at the table with Jesus. We are already taking part, as it were, in the marriage feast of the Lamb. But the full reality of that will be more visible when Christ comes. We Remember, we are living in the now and the not yet. And even in the now, there's elements of that of the, that glory to come. We are making visible the heavenly kingdom of God. God's blood both people gathered around the table with the king. That's what heaven will be like. And we are getting a taste of that already at the Lord's table. Feasting as a family. Now just imagine for me for a second what this meant for believers in Rome as they read these words of Mark during a severe time of persecution. As they gathered, I can imagine they couldn't help remembering people who used to sit next to them. You know when we take the Lord's table, sometimes we remember people who have walked through the church, who are members, but they are no longer sat where they used to sit. Right? And for them it would have been the same. As they took the Lord's table, they would have remembered people that had been martyred, believers that had been killed for Christ. And we imagine as they had sat together, they would have been overcome with tears at the terrible losses they have suffered. And they would have perhaps started worrying for themselves, right? But when they read these words in Mark 14, verse 22 to 26, as they broke the bread and drank the wine, they remembered that this is actually an unfinished meal. They understood that this meal they are taking part in pointed to the world to come, to a future where there will be no suffering. Only endless joy. And all of a sudden, the Lord's Supper galvanized their hope. It made them look forward afresh to living for Jesus. They had a new eye on the new heavens and the new earth. And we imagine as they finished eating the Lord's Supper, they would have gotten up, renewed in hope, and vigor to press on, vigor to face Nero's lion. Eager to, eager to face, I must say. Eager to face, as it were, with new hope. Eager to face Monday with all the challenges it brings. You see, the Lord's Supper was not a boring topic for them. It was not even a topic. It was a reality they were living in. It was not boring for them. It was not something that you had to guilt them to do. They longed for it. Why? Because it was their embodied hope. 
And that is what I've actually been trying to do the whole day today. I've been trying to remind you that the Lord's Supper is an amazing gift from Jesus to reinvigorate your faith and love for him. And so if you find the Lord's Supper boring or inconveniencing, it is probably because you just don't understand it. That could be one. So, so you've never had two sermons on it. That could be one reason. Or perhaps worse is that you have lost sight of Jesus. You have lost sight of Christ himself. Because the Lord's Supper is not a meal for the church. It is a meal from Jesus and with Jesus. And we might even say for Jesus. And you and I are graciously invited to dine with him. God wants us. I thought about this. What does God want us to do with the Lord's Supper? God wants us to love the Lord's Supper so much that we feel we cannot live without it. We feel we need it to keep us focused on the Lord Jesus. So not loving the Lord's Supper for the Lord's Supper's sake, but loving the Lord's Supper because it points us in so many amazing ways to Jesus. It points us that Jesus is present among us. It points us that we are blood-bought people with a new life with God. It points us, it defines who we are. It says we belong to a, a new race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then it keeps us focused on the hope that lies ahead of us. The new heaven, the new earth. And they reminder that in a world that of so many challenges, in a world where we face so many pressures, so many worries of the, over the coronavirus and this and that, what an amazing thing to know that we are already sat at the table with Christ. I think that changes Monday, doesn't it? If you go in the office on Monday knowing that you, you are already, you have been reminded, if you come here by the Lord's table, you, you can say, well, you know, I've been, I sat with the Lord. And, and wherever you are, you're sitting with the Lord, of course. But I remind that the, new, the, the, the future is already breaking in and you are part of that kingdom of God. Wow. It should governize us. And we should pray that it should governize us. And my prayer is that as a church, we would grow to love the Lord's table and grow in celebrating it in a way that honors our Lord Jesus. Amen.